0: Karen Tate and I am so happy to be with you, uh, especially at our new time, uh, 11 a.m. Uh, yes, we've switched uh, from 6 p.m. If you haven't, um, if you haven't heard yet or realized, because I know many of you listen from the archives at your convenience. Uh, but if you do want to catch us live, uh, we are now on at 11 a.m. Most Wednesdays, although the day does uh, change uh, because sometimes uh, guests can't accommodate a Wednesday. Uh, And if I feel like the interview is uh, important uh, I will be flexible And uh, I'm also doing some shows on my own Starting this year uh, based on uh, the book I wrote, uh, God is Calling, Inspirational Messages and uh, Meditations of Sacred Feminine Liberation Theology, uh, and all that means is it's kind of a mouthful uh, that means that, uh, you know, how the Sacred Feminine inspires us, and uh, Sort of sets us free from the shackles of patriarchy, uh, so anyway, um, if you click the follow button on my show page, uh, you won 't have to worry so much about the time and the day and if you're missing something because you will get a reminder uh, in your email inbox uh, when a new show uh, it, you know is in the archives and ready to listen to, so that 's really the best way not to miss anything. And uh, before we get started, uh, just some thanks uh, to the Reclaiming folks. Um, the music you were listening to is a cut from their uh, Campfire Chance song, uh, and you were listening to uh, the one they call Sweet Water, and again, that's a Reclaiming Campfire Chance, and um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, today's show, which is uh, Daughters of Alcoholic Mothers uh, with Sharon uh, Robodeau. Uh, sh- I'll tell you a little bit about Sharon in, in detail in a moment, uh, but uh, you know just to give you um, an idea of uh, where our show is going to go today, uh, Sharon co-authored a book by the name of My Mama's Waltz, a book for Daughters of Alcoholic Mothers. And um, she's with me today to discuss that topic. And um, there's a powerful quote from the book, I believe, uh, that goes like this, uh, quote, She was my best friend when sober, and I was her worst enemy when she was drunk,
1: unquote.
0: So we're going to delve into the effects um, on women or daughters uh, when they live with mothers who are alcoholics. Uh, We'll talk about how these uh, daughters uh, mother their own children. Uh, We'll talk about mother substitutes and um, how daughters were treated versus sons. Uh, We'll also get into sexual abuse in families because, uh, as Sharon says, uh, that's kind of a big topic And uh, problems around the holidays, you know, we just went through the holidays, and um, maybe some of you will be able to relate, Uh, that'll be timely. Uh, We'll talk about where the fathers have gone to, uh, how this affects uh, these women's romantic relationships uh, later on in life, you know, how we can reconcile the past uh, and heal the heart. So um, a little bit about uh, Sharon. Uh, She was born in Louisiana, just like me, (laughs) Uh, and uh, she was born in 1951. She was the oldest of five children. Um, Her mother's drinking affected uh, her teen years and her early adulthood, and unlike her siblings, uh, she escaped the home through education. She went on to obtain a degree in fine art, a master's in creative writing, a doctorate in rhetoric and composition. Uh, She's retired now. from thirty years of teaching, and uh, uh, she spends her days um, you know taking care of her four main coon cats. Uh, she has a husband and a brother who's ill and uh, a son uh, with mental health issues and she says um, she is eight years older than her mother lived to be. Uh, her mother died at age sixty and uh, she is now sixty eight And uh, she says, I have fought my own addiction issues, primarily with food, and I still fight the sound in my memory of my mother telling me I was ugly, ill-tempered, and selfish. So, Sharon, let's get the conversation going. Uh, Welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine.
2: Welcome to you, and thank you for asking me. uh, It's been such a long time since I've had the privilege of talking about my research in the book, that I'm really grateful for this opportunity, and I'm grateful also to meet a fellow traveler. (laughs)
0: Well, uh, same here, same here. Um, You know, as I already mentioned to you, Sharon, and, uh, you know, I will, you know, let my audience in on this, uh, I discovered uh, your book, uh, My Mama's Waltz, a book for daughters of alcoholic mothers, because I happened to be reading Sharon Blackie's book, uh, If Women Rose Rooted, and uh, she mentioned some things in there uh, because she had discovered, your book and found it very powerful and uh, it was insightful to her. And, um, you know, I got some things from that book that she got from your book, you know, that are kind of third hand or second hand here. And I want to talk about uh, those as well. Um, But uh, let's, Uh, you know, start with the obvious, I guess. Um, uh, You know, how did it come to be that you and your co-author actually decided to put pen to paper and undertake this book? And was it an anthology or is it a book that was just, um, you know, uh, your research and your co-author's research?
2: Well, it's really an interesting story because one of the things that we've discovered is that we daughters of alcoholic parents uh can define each other. And Ellie and I happened to be teaching at the same small school in Georgia, and one day just chatting, we both discovered that we were uh, similar in that both of our mothers had been alcoholics and so this was in the um, late 80s, early 90s, and we uh, began to talk about how interesting it was that even though she had come from an affluent uh, environment with well-educated parents and I had come from poverty with parents with no education, that we still had many of the very same reactions and life experiences, and we got to wondering, is this true for other people? Uh, when we finally did decide, yes, this is something we want to do, we sent out uh, query letters, and almost immediately we got a bite. And uh, John Ward, who is now uh, where, who is now deceased, uh, became our agent and got our, our book shopped around, and it was purchased by Pocket Books, which is a division of Simon & Schuster. And we set to work. By that time, I was a graduate student in my PhD program in Missouri, so most of this was handled back and forth with telephone calls and emails, and uh, it was a a laborious process. But uh, throughout it all, we kept working. We interviewed about uh, 300 people. Uh, Women uh, most were not done in person; they were done uh, on. they called us. We set up a 1-800 number, and we interviewed them. But we did have an opportunity to interview a lot of women face-to-face, including our own sisters. And you know, together, we, we of course, we did a lot of reading and research on our own. And so we began to realize the things that we had in common, the things that were not uh, necessarily common to any of us. But it certainly was eye-opening to us. Okay. Well,
0: and, uh, you know, I'm really interested in this for lots of reasons. Um, You know, there was alcoholism in my family. Uh, Also, I'm really interested in the topic of abuse these days uh, because I think we hide the abuse we're subject to. Uh, I think sometimes we even normalize the abuse and don't realize it's abuse, uh, whether consciously or unconsciously. I mean, recently I was reading an article about – Uh, a a minister stood up in front of his church and uh, asked women in the congregation uh, to come forward if they were experiencing abuse in their marriages, and he was gobsmacked at the number of women who actually had the courage to step up and be seen. Uh, And you know if there were that many that came forward, uh, you know, how many didn't have the courage to stand up because, you know, who knows what might happen to them when they went home. Um, you know, I, I do wonder, you know, because you and I realize that we're both from the South, we're both about the same age, uh, so that means, you know, we came from the Bible Belt. Um, do you think uh, being from that region of the country uh, maybe put us at a disadvantage to handle this sort of problem, or do you find it, it was just um, – you know, widespread.
2: I don't think that uh, Ellie and I encountered that amount, uh, that much abuse from husbands as much as we did. Let me give you just an example. Many of the girls and women we talked with had been abused by their, their mother's uh, boyfriends or their stepfathers because mom was just too drunk to prevent it. And that was the kind of abuse that we both uh, seem to be uh, seeing more of. But a lot of women uh, found themselves in marriages in which they expected to be abused and were abused simply because that was what they thought was the norm. Now, Ellie is from the Northeast, and so her experiences had nothing to do with the Deep South, although she did wind up living and still does in the Deep South. So, I don't know if region had much to do with it, but I do know that the churches, as I was growing up, certainly taught that women were to be, uh, they were to obey their fathers and their husbands. My mother's uh, father was also an alcoholic, and he was also a part time preacher and a part time tenant farmer. And while I don't think he ever abused his own children, They took in boarders to help make ends meet, and I suspect that my mother may have been abused by some of the male boarders in their house. And so, you know, uh, one of the statistics we came across was that a whole lot of women who are substance abusers have been abused sexually and physically and verbally. Uh, We make a big deal in the book, by the way, about verbal abuse and how often it's not considered abuse, and I think a lot of cases uh women who are abused by boyfriends or spouses uh endure verbal abuse but don't consider it abuse because they have no bruises. Does that right. help?
0: Well, and, and I yeah 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 it does it does uh and and you hit on uh something i was thinking about you know the church often tells the woman to endure uh you know i've interviewed a lot of women uh with christian backgrounds some of them who have escaped uh fundamentalist churches uh, particularly like a quiverful movement for instance right. and uh you know th- they're told their purpose in life is to have children and even as they get older and um you know that's not healthy anymore they're they're Told, well, if you die, you know, Jesus will bless you. Um, You know, or they're told that they're supposed to endure and uh, abuses and even grounds for a divorce. Now, if the hus- husband strays and he's an adulterer, well maybe um, but but we're like you said we're not necessarily just talking about abuse from a husband you know we're just we 're talking about um, you know the many uh, aspects of uh, what happens to uh, women in particular daughters who um, uh, you know who grew up with you know, alcoholic parents or alcoholic uh, mothers. So, uh, thanks for the, you know, kind of the parameters of, uh, you know, how you uh, gathered the research uh, for the book. But, you know, as long as we're kind of talking about the man uh, before we segue away from them, um, you know, in these households, you know, where daughters were putting up with alcoholic mothers, um, where were the fathers usually? Did they stick around or did they disappear? Did you go get that pack of cigarettes you hear
1: about
2: or what most of the fathers disappeared uh very few about maybe a third stick around my father stayed ellie's father stayed and we considered ourselves very fortunate because both of us uh felt protected to some small degree but fathers go to work And fathers can't necessarily control what's going on while they're gone to work. And my mother drank during the day, and her brother often lived with us. He was um, very much an alcoholic and would sexually abuse my sister and me. My mother would pass out, and and, uh, he would chase us around the house. In Ellie's case, I don't believe she had to put up with anything like that, but she did find herself similarly to me that if she told her mother about an incident and neither of us ever felt we could trust our mothers to tell them about much, but if we did, she felt that her mother would blame her. That's what my mother did. When we tried to tell my mother that your brother is abusing us she would get very angry and say, no he's not, you're making it up, you're lying, you're trying to seduce him. As if we would want to seduce so- someone when we were 10 years old, right? Um, right? So many of the the girls that and women that we interviewed said that It was just a matter of mom just wasn't there. She wasn't there physically. She wasn't there emotionally, and she wasn't there mentally. And so what happened to them, they had to more or less deal with on their own. They had nobody to uh, back them up. Now, fortunately for the third of us who did get to retain having a father at home, in many cases the fathers uh, were strong protectors, but sometimes they were enablers. And here's uh, one of the stories in the book that uh, people will find if they read it. Um, This woman was drunk, and she wanted more alcohol, and she told the husband to go get more alcohol, and he said no. And she took their youngest child and dangled the child over a balcony and said, I will drop this child if you do not go get me more alcohol. So he did. Wow. Wow.
0: Uh I, I mean it does it doesn't seem like it's much difference from um any other drug, you know, um coke, meth, heroin. Uh it seems like uh the addiction is just as powerful a thing.
2: It is as powerful and very often it's combined with drugs. Back in the sixties, one of the uh treatments that doctors who apparently didn't know better would employ to cure women of alcoholism was to prescribe them high doses of things like Valium. So my mother would take what she called her little nerve pill and then also drink, and the combination of the two, as you can well imagine, was uh, pretty lethal. She got into two different very bad car accidents. And in Ellie's mother's case, uh, Ellie's father was a psychiatrist, and her mother was a registered nurse, and she had access to just about every kind of pill and medication possible, and died young that from what Ellie suspects was an overdose.
0: Wow, well, you know you mentioned the little pill, um, and uh we talked about that recently on a show i, I uh, the the topic of the show escapes me, but we were talking about. Uh, women especially uh, you know maybe in the 40s or 50s um, you know who grew up and were so dissatisfied with their lives you know maybe they were college graduates they were relegated to um, you know that leave it to beaver image you know your uh, high heels and pearls vacuuming the floor with a college education and you know that's uh, all you can see down the road is your lot in life and you know some of these women resorted to taking the, the, you know, the little blue pill uh, to medicate themselves. Um, Did you find, um, you know, uh, what was behind uh, the discontent, uh, and that's probably not a strong enough word, but why were these women um, uh, drinking, you know? uh, Did there seem to be a commonality amongst uh, what drove them?
2: You put your foot right on it. It's exactly what you said, the discontent, the sense that this is all there is. My mother used to say as much, is this all there is? And Ellie's mother in particular had had to give up her own pursuit of getting her own doctorate to become a stay-at-home mom. And just that was her lament, is this all there is? Is this what I've wasted my brain for, to be uh, Mrs. Doctor's wife? But my own mother also had had a a great deal of tragedy in her life. Uh, When I was 13, her youngest sister got drunk on July 4th and tried to swim and drown. And my mother was pregnant with her fifth child, my younger brother. And it was shortly after that that my mother went from having the occasional beer with Daddy to being drunk most of the time. It was as if uh, she had lost something so important, not only her sister's life, but her own future, that she just couldn't imagine that there would be a way to grasp it back, to pull it back to her. And no <laughs> amount think, of uh, – uh, go ahead. No, go ahead.
0: Well, no, 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 you, you finish, and, and then I'll ask
2: the question. Well, it just seemed that no amount of socialization or just being with Daddy and the kids, that that just didn't seem to satisfy. And even though my mother was not educated, she was very bright and artistically quite talented. But there was just no room in her life to fulfill her own desires and her own self-growth.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I wonder if, and and again, I'm speculating because, um, uh, quite honestly, uh, it's unfortunate for me that you know I didn't think to ask my own mother these sorts of questions. Um, but I wonder if it had to do uh, with you know not only uh, you know like you said um, you know is this all there is, um, but I wonder if you know. B- during the time period we're talking about, you know, maybe psychology wasn't quite so accepted. Um, Also, too, maybe women didn't have the outlets that they have today, you know, to go take classes or, uh, you know, to learn how to, you know, pursue their artistic, um, you know, passions and things like that. Do you think, you know, that was part of it, the, the four walls of that kitchen and house? Uh, you know, was you know, were there boundaries almost? Uh,
2: it was almost like being in a cage for my mother because we lived in a rural area, and there were there was nothing for an adult woman. She was uh, supposed to be happy with her stay-at-home uh, life, and in Ellie's case, I think that probably there were. But when you're the wife of a prominent Psychologist, you don't go to another psychologist to try to get help. You know, it would have been a professional suicide for him to have allowed her to do that. Uh, another thing, uh, the few Alcoholics Anonymous programs that were set up catered mainly to men and men's types of drinking problems. And this is something that I've kind of railed on, and I hope that it doesn't step on toes, But I feel that the emphasis in in Alcoholics Anonymous to uh, reach for a higher power is rather wasted for women because women are already feeling helpless. They are already feeling that they can't control anything. So being told you're not in control, you have to reach for a higher power, may actually be a, a damper on their desire to get help or to be able to utilize the help that might be out there. Almost the only thing that was available and in a small town it was just a, a social faux pas to confess to your preacher that I'm having this this problem that I'm alcoholic that I'm abusing my family and I'm drinking up what little money we have for food and clothing. It would have
1: just
2: it would have been all over town within a matter of hours or at least that's how my mother looked at right. it. I don't know right, that it would right. have been. And, and she,
0: but, you know, she might have been right. You know, she might have become the and that would have just added uh, the stigma would have added to uh added to the pressures. Um well, you you um kind of tickled something a minute ago. Um do you think alcoholic women um are different than alcoholic men aside from the ho- higher power thing? Um I, you yes. know I'm wondering if there talk about that a bit,
2: okay, to begin with, physically, women are different from men when it comes to being uh, susceptible to alcohol because of the lower body weight and lower fat uh ratio. And so as a result, uh, there is uh, a different way that women become addicted. But second is that men did most of their drinking with companions. They would stop for a beer after work and stay till they were sloshed. Women then and less so now were closet secret drinkers. My mother kept her bottle of booze hidden in the back part of the toilet, Uh, there or in the big bin that she kept flour in. She drank silently and secretively and did her best to hide it with mints and uh, mouthwash and so forth. Uh, Men had a much more open path to drinking in public. And so it was not only the physical addiction, but the added shame of addiction. And, you know, a man might be ashamed of being addicted, but for a man, uh, society assumes he's going to get violent if he gets drunk. For a woman, they assume she's going to become slutty. And in my mother's Mm -hmm. case, that actually did happen. In order to get money for alcohol, she would exchange sexual favors with men at bars. And, in fact, my sister and brother, the younger two who were still at home, would be in the back seat of the car when she was in the front seat with some person she had met at the bar. And so you have that added shame as well, you know, that the only way you can get the money to drink is to do something like that. So it was just...
0: what what an image what an image you conjured up there, Sharon um uh, and again, you know, I keep thinking, you know we see all of these shows on television where that sort of thing might be happening, and it's a drug addict, but we don't see it so much um you know when it's when it's alcohol um so so let me ask you about siblings um were daughters treated differently than sons uh, by the alcoholic mother?
2: not always but usually for some reason and it could be more the age of the you know the times that we were talking about but my mother had always believed that I would be I was the firstborn and she always believed that I would be a, a boy and the same was true with Ellie and many of the other people that we uh, interviewed and talked to said that their mothers acted as if their sons were wonderful golden perfect children And they acted as if they hated their daughters. They criticized them constantly. Uh, Ellie wrote very eloquently, I think, about how she would constantly take the fingernail scissors and cut bits of her own hair off. It it was sort of a self-mutilating thing, but she was trying to become prettier, uh, to give herself a cute haircut or something. And I chewed my fingernails till they bled, and it was just a self-mutilating kind of thing. By the way, my mother had lovely fingernails, so the fact that I chewed mine till they bled made her quite angry. But the mothers would definitely – they didn't see the sons as having to emulate them. But, you know, a little girl is going to look at her mother and say, I'm supposed to grow up and be like you. And then when your role model is that flawed, I think the mother sees that disappointment reflected in her daughter's eyes, and she strikes back. And a lot of our mothers seemed jealous. Uh, I had a wonderful relationship with my father, and Ellie had a wonderful relationship with hers. And our mothers both acted as if they could not stand for this daughter, this female person, to be so pretty in the eyes of of their husbands and we heard from a well, lot and, of and others who to... go ahead
0: Yeah, go ahead well and and you well you mentioned jealousy um i wonder if Uh, as you grew up and you got older and you're the next generation and things are changing a bit and, uh, you know, you're going off to college um, uh, and maybe even in high school, I I don't know, I'm guessing, you know, proms, uh, you know, high school pictures, those sorts of things. You know, I wonder if the mothers were feeling like, Uh, the daughters had hope for a better life and theirs was over. Uh, Do you think that that there was maybe jealousy uh, on the part of the mothers jealous of their own daughters?
2: I know that that was the case. Uh, My own mother had dropped out to marry when she was only uh, 14, 15 years old. And as I've mentioned, Ellie's mother gave up her medical career in order to be a stay-at-home mom because it was expected and they, uh, I was going to go to college when my mother had not even finished high school, and she did her best to talk me out of it. She said, Oh, men don't like educated women. You need to find yourself somebody to marry and stay home with. And uh, just, <laughs> I, uh, gee, mom, I can tell you're so happy doing that. Let me just do that too. <laughs> But there was right, definitely right. a lot of jealousy, and also since the mothers who were not married or in a stable relationship, a, a lot of their boyfriends and a lot of stepfathers would sexually abuse these daughters, and that also caused a lot of uh, issues, jealousy.
0: All right. Uh it, we're We're going to take a break now, and I want to come back and talk a little bit more about that, but also uh i want to, uh also you know get into how this all affected the daughters you know what wounds uh did that leave the daughters with and um and you know and and of course you know we'll get into the you know the the jealousy of the the mothers toward the daughters because of their relationships with their dad and uh and all of that um but uh but first um uh I have a clip here um that features some of the women in Joe Carson's film uh Dancing with Gaia uh so just a minute here. The psychic state of the collective unconscious which is that consciousness of the planet what's called the kaphonic mind the mind of the earth our ancestors understood that the animals and divine were all connected, they were together That there wasn't a separation and that's what we are trying to return to is that sense that our animal nature is divine it doesn't get in the way of the divine it gets us
1: closer to it
0: What's your idea of being fully alive as a human being? Because that's what's really spiritual. Write it down. Start writing your own Bible if you want. Sex is sacred. And by that, I just mean sweaty, fun, happy sex. Dancing with Gaia uh, is available only at uh, dancingwithgaia.com uh, dancingwithgaia.com. Uh so I am uh, with uh Sharon Robodeau today and uh we are talking about the findings in the book uh she co-authored. Uh the title is My Mama's Waltz: A Book for Daughters of Alcoholic Mothers. And uh Sharon before we went to commercial you were saying that um Uh, The mothers were often uh, jealous of the relationships the daughters had with their fathers.
2: Oh, yes. And, in fact, if my father uh, did something nice for me, my mother would expect him to do something twice as nice for her. Uh, He had gotten me uh, something, I forget, something minor, and uh, she had gone out and bought something twice as good for herself, you know, just because she felt like he had uh, spent money on me that she thought should have been spent on her. I really think if she had had her own childhood and had not been part of such a large family she might not have been quite so uh, uncomfortable with that but she was uh, and she didn't like the fact that my father thought that I was pretty uh, She, I was brushing my hair one day and she walked by and saw me brushing my hair and she Uh, was drunk and she says you think you're pretty but you're not and that those words even now i can see her face i can hear her voice and you know that's been 50 years ago more and i can still as if it were yesterday i can tell you exactly where i was and where she was and you know it was just uh, so cutting uh, so mean
0: yeah. Yeah, these uh these things that we hear as children, you know, you think we forget them in time, but um uh you know they uh they they don't go away sometimes. You know, they they never go yeah. away and um so so let's um you know, let's get into a bit about how you know, living in this environment, putting up with all of this, what sort of wounds does it leave a girl with? Um, and I'll, I'll just mention a few things. You know, what you just said about the mother being jealous of the daughter, I wonder if that's in a way what fosters sometimes this competition among women that um, makes it hard for them to support one another. Um, do you think that's even remotely um, you know remotely true,
2: I don't know. my mother had wonderful relationships with her sisters. She was so close to them that I was actually jealous of how close she was to them since she was not close to her three daughters uh, But it could be true for for others uh, oddly, my mother was not one to have many friends, and I don't know if it had something to do with jealousy or not, but I felt as though I didn't know how to be a friend to other people because I didn't see that my mother knew how to be a friend to other women. So that was one of the odd things that that came out of it, and I think Ellie felt the same. She said her mother seemed to self-isolate. But another problem that her mother had had is that her mother was Canadian and had no family living in the United States, and so she felt isolated from family as well as uh, from other women. So, you know, when, the isolation... I know
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, that would make it hard that would make it hard for, for one to uh, develop um uh, you know, meaningful relationships or maybe even any relationship. Uh but I was about to say, uh one of the things I read in Sharon Blackie's uh book, uh, If Women Rose Rooted, uh that sort of jumped out at me um and and i don 't know if she deduced this or uh you know having read the book or if this was something that that uh, that you stated in the book, but she said that um she she found that uh, women who um, uh, were daughters of alcoholic mothers. That they didn't trust other women, that they sort of stayed in their own head, um, in their sort of left brain head uh, too, um, where they didn't really trust their own emotions, their own intuitive abilities. Um, Was that something that you remember from the book, or might that possibly just have been Blackie's?
2: um, I don't know, but I do know after reading the book. Ellie and I both would tell you that we did not trust other women, and we neither of us had uh, extensive numbers of girlfriends. In fact, our own relationship, I hate to say this, but uh, oddly, uh, a woman that I had been friends with had been very unkind after the book came out, and Ellie promised me that she would never be as... uh, cold to me as this woman was and yet we wound up having a falling out over religion and haven't spoken to each other in years now and I've felt that my sense of not trusting other women has been actually intensified because of that I have seldom had at, uh women friendships as strong as the uh, male friendships that I've had over the years and I'm often accused of being far too logical and unemotional for my own good and Ellie is also <laughs> a, a very logical person
0: uh that that's that's funny i you know I've sort of often described myself um you know if you're a star trek fan um i i am know, liking myself a little Well, you know, I I sort of liken myself a little bit more uh, as Spock you know, rather yes. than Dr. McCoy, who's who's yes. always this uh, drama queen, you know, <laughs> and that uh, you know, because I I just couldn't stand that sort of uh, you know that that uh, that over emotional kind of um, um, uh, reaction to to everything. You know, I you know I the roller coaster ride. You know, that just uh, that, made damn me, it, Jim. He's uh, a only human. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: no, I, yeah. I had a crush yeah. on Mr. Spock, like you would not believe. <laughs> (laughs) Still do, as a matter of fact, and uh, my husband is very much like Mr. Spock, tall and thin, and very cerebral.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and, you know, you could almost have a have a chapter in your book, uh, daughters of alcoholic mothers who admire Mr. Spock. (laughs) Uh, That
2: might make a good article to write one day. (laughs) But you know, it's really. uh, I found myself having to. Uh, trust emotions in a way that I had not before when my husband was diagnosed with cancer and on one hand I know I have to be very very logical I have to make sure he takes medications and goes to doctor's appointments and so forth but for the first time I'm finding myself reaching for meaning beyond what's here and now and uh, I had cast aside religion a long time ago because my mother used to beat me and recite religious verses, Bible verses, you know, as she slapped me. And uh, it's uh, kind of hard to uh, think of God as good when you are being slapped across your face. But now that Doug is facing, uh, my husband's name is Doug, is facing uh, what is a, a cancer with no cure, I'm reaching for other means of, of solace than just logic and facts and science.
0: Right, right. That, well, that uh, that makes sense. Well, the quote that I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, she was my best friend when sober and I was her worst enemy when she was drunk. Where does that come from? Do you remember?
2: One of the women that we interviewed uh, at it was true in part. Uh, I've told many people, and, of course, you know all about the Southern Bell Syndrome, but my mother was the most wonderful, courteous, sweet. If you came to her house and it was a good day and she was sober, you you would be fed, you would be provided coffee, anything you needed if you needed a listening ear, if you needed a shoulder to cry on, she was just there. She was so kind. But the minute she began to drink, that it, it, we used to c- kind of tease about it being a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. And when she began to drink, her compassion and empathy and desire to please other people just disappeared. It was simply I want to please myself, and and I understand that to a large degree because very little else in her life served to only please her.
0: Right, Mm -hmm. right. Um well let's well, let's um get into a little bit more about the, the scars and wounds that the daughters are left with. Um um what would those be? You know, uh maybe self-esteem issues, addiction issues, oh, um career... yeah, talk about all of that a little bit. How how what okay. would this lingering effect of having lived with the alcoholic parent um be for the daughter, and I wonder if do you do you happen to know if it was did it matter whether it was the mother or, or the the father or uh you know it, uh, yeah
2: you're supposed to grow up and be like your mother if you're a girl you're not supposed to grow up and be like your father, and so if your mother isn't there and if the example she's providing for you is a very negative one. You're left without a role model, which is one of the reasons we had the chapter on mother substitutes. And had it not been for helpful family members and neighbors, uh, a lot of daughters of alcoholic mothers would have had issues with, how do I address this matter of being female? My mother never even told me the facts of life. Her her talk about the facts of life was when you get married, your husband will want to do things and you won't want to do them, but you'll have to because he'll make you and you'll hate it. That was, that was it. That was the sex talk. But right. self-esteem, you know, being constantly belittled, and, of course, we were so poor, and my mother's drinking didn't help that at all, uh, that – I couldn't compete with other girls when it came to fashionable clothing, or uh, I couldn't even stay after school. I had to get home to to take care of the family, and Ellie had a pretty similar uh, sense of being responsible for the younger brother and and sister and not feeling pretty feeling ugly, feeling stupid in, in some cases we both did, and it... A lot of the women we interviewed had self-esteem issues. In fact, obesity was one of the major uh, issues. Uh, The mothers, for some reason, uh, were not only jealous of what their daughters looked like, but would openly sabotage so that the daughters would become less pretty and would either hide all the food in the house, which is what Ellie's mother did, or make sure that the food in the house was of such poor quality that it was just not satisfactory. I had uh, all kinds of uh, skin and hair issues because we had such poor quality food, you know, high fat, high sugar, very little uh, of the kind of food that one ought to eat. I, I want to insert uh, one of the women we interviewed, her mother would attempt to starve her She had locked the refrigerator, locked the cupboards. The girl would occasionally steal a can of green beans and run out and hide in this field behind her house and eat the green beans cold out of the can and then bury the can in the the lot because she didn't dare leave evidence, her mother would actually count slices of bread to make sure her daughter had not taken any of the bread. And these were even in people who could afford to have food in the house without any issues. But you can imagine you know, deprivation, starvation, being told how unattractive you were, being told how self-centered you were. Uh, how imperfect you were, that you didn't have much of a self-esteem. And even now my husband will tell you, and we've been married 48 years, if he uh, says something about thinking I'm attractive or pretty, I just give him this look like you're lying to me. You're not supposed to lie to me. That's that's a lie. Don't lie to me. But we all faced any number of addiction issues, problems with men. Uh, After all, We didn't see a healthy marriage. Even when the dad stayed, we did not see a healthy marriage, so we didn't know how to have a healthy marriage. We did not see healthy parenting, so we did not know how to be a parent. A lot of the women we interviewed chose not to be mothers at all because they were so afraid that they would be mothers like theirs were. And I was terrified. I read every book I could get. There goes my Mr. Spock again. And I read every book I could about pregnancy and childbirth and child raising because I didn't feel that I had any clue how to do it. And so yeah, I yeah. I got it all out of the other Spock, Mr. Spock, <laughs> Dr. Spock. <laughs>
0: Um, well uh, that all that all makes so much sense, uh, you because know, there's no role model there. Uh well, well how does um you, you've alluded to it a couple times, but um uh in some of the materials you sent me you said sexual abuse in the family, that's a big uh big topic we should talk about. Um, why is that worse or bigger than some of the other things? Uh, speak to that a bit, Sharon.
2: So many times women who are alcoholics are alcoholics because they have been sexually abused, and I believe my mother was sexually abused, and when they are sexually abused, they tend to not talk about it or hide it or excuse it, and so when their daughters get sexually abused, it's like, okay, this is just what happens. Grow up. Live with it. That's yeah. that's what you do with it, and that, in turn, goes on to the next generation. I'm not going to mention names, but I have a niece who has been uh, sexually abused in many ways. And, uh, again, I, I see that as just the next generation, that if you don't get some help, if you don't get some therapy, if you don't reach out and find out why you're trying to excuse... Uh, letting yourself fall into that trap time and time again because, you know, this sounds like blaming the victim. Uh, Predators pick their victims because they recognize a weakness in them. They recognize this is someone who has been taught not to go home and tell mom and dad. This is someone who will keep it to herself because she's never been believed before and she won't be believed now. And yeah. it's almost and like they, I would have, imagine they... they Go ahead.
0: Go, no, you go ahead. Well, it, um, I was going to say, you know, you're dealing with a low self-esteem, uh, as you said, you know, uh, you know, and, and what I said at the top of the show, you know, we've normalized this abuse, uh is and I think you you said the words almost to that uh you know to that effect you know that uh uh from generation to generation, well, this is just the way it is, this is what happens, and um rather than not tolerating it, we sort of just um it's a skeleton in the closet,
2: yes. And many times I've spoken about uh, the mother's alcoholism and the abuse in the family as being the elephant in the living room that nobody talks about, and it's there, and you have to tiptoe around it. But let me say a word about verbal abuse, okay, because it does get treated so lightly, and it honestly is one of the ways in which mothers can defeat their daughters before their daughters even get a chance – If you are told over and over and over how fat you are, how ugly you are, how stupid you are, how incompetent you are, uh, how worthless you are, you believe it. After a while, I don't care how many people try to tell you otherwise, you believe it. And I think that one of the reasons so many of us grew up and went into nurturing occupations, one of my sisters was a nurse, I was a retired teacher, Ellie's a retired teacher, so many of the women that we interviewed had gone into helping professions because in in uh, some way we had this big empty hole in our heart that we tried to fill by loving on other people. And a whole lot of us became Thanks, just super, super devoted to animals. And oddly... That was something that was true of both Ellie's mother and my mother. They were both huge animal lovers and would have done more for animals than they did for their children. I don't know why. It was yeah. really odd. I watched my mother time and time again save animals from harm that she just basically turned her head the other way that her children were undergoing. But the verbal abuse, you know, it was just it was constant, just constant. Uh, Uh, Yes, there was physical abuse. Uh, There was brutality. I walked in the door one day, and um, my little sister, who was two years younger than I was, was sitting in front of the TV. She was very nearsighted, so she sat very close to the TV, watching TV. And for some reason, Mom was angry with her. She had said something earlier that day that had made Mama angry, and she would sit and brood about something and drink and brood and drink and brood. She had an iron skillet in her hand. And she had it drawn back and was going to hit my sister in the back of her head with this iron skillet. And I saw, just as I was coming through the door, my father somehow appeared and snatched the skillet from her hand. And it was just Hmm. this moment frozen in time, you know, where you feel as if any minute you're going to see brains everywhere. But it was just... You know, knowing that your mother has tried to kill you and it, even if she was drunk at the yeah. time and probably didn't even remember it later, that my sister has been through three marriages and has just never been happy with her her marriages. She's yeah. fought her own addiction issues. My younger sister, there are three girls, not only has fought her own addiction issues but has had gone into uh, premature Alzheimer's, I think, just... Uh, getting away from the world about as far from the world as you can get.
0: Right. Well, you know, and, and it's funny, you know, um, uh, you know, look, you know, I'm talking anecdotally here, and I'm hypothesizing, uh, but you know, like especially now we have this opioid epidemic, and mm-hmm. um, I think one of the things that that isn't talked about in the opioid epidemic is, yeah, we talk about that it's there, but not why it's there. You know, are pe- do people feel hopeless in their lives? Is it because you know of the biggest income disparity? The country seen, and uh, you know, in, in decades, um, you know, the American dream is slipping away. Um, I, I mean, I guess there's so many reasons. It could be, you know, fear, um, you know, changes in the country, um, you know, just a multitude of things. But, um, but you know, as I as I hear you talk. Um, you know i I feel like uh you know th- this isn 't a topic that I feel like we're um, we're addressing enough out there in society, especially when you consider this becomes a generational problem.
2: It truly does, and when Ellie and I were writing the book, I had predicted that we were going to see a lot more overt addiction problems for women. And just the other day, I came across something that said between 1999 and 2017, Americans who died from alcohol-related problems uh, had more than doubled and that the largest increase was among women, and this was from liver disease and overdoses, and it didn't surprise me in the least. Uh, we had been approached about doing a Japanese version of our book, and I wrote a new forward for that Japanese version. And at that time, uh, Japan was on its uh, beginning of uh, sort of a a spate of women with addiction issues. England has also begun to have a a similar problem with women who are becoming addicted and uh, not – having the resources to help fight. Because as I said, I really don't think AA is always the right choice for women. Uh, I think women need to be taught ways to get in touch with their inner strength and not to be told how weak they are and how somebody else or something else needs to care for them. I, I can't verify that, but I just feel that that is, what I've been watching for the last thirty years, and it's so—I um, saw it in my students. Well, and
0: well, and and you know, uh, and and look, I don't, I don't know any women who are into Goddess spirituality who might be in AA. I'm sure they exist, um, but I would think that uh, it's difficult for a woman to, uh, or let's just say a feminist woman at least, to go to AA because you're putting your uh, power potentially in the hands of God. Now, maybe they just do a gender switch and they put their power in the hands of Goddess, but I mean, let let's just you know, how do you put your, you know, put your life in the hands of a religion that has made you a second class citizen,
1: that's exactly. demeaned
0: you, that's relegated you to being barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, um, you know, I can see where you know, um, you know, maybe AA just. You know, it doesn't work as easily for women because it's almost as if you're going to uh, one of the sources of your problem in a way. Right, you're trying to rely on a
2: patriarchal solution to a problem that is a woman's problem.
0: Yeah, yeah. so you know perhaps there there are goddess versions of AA out there where uh women do find empowerment because look i know women do find uh, personal empowerment When they discover a feminine face of God Because suddenly they realize That you know deity is not Just in the image of man it, This was a you know a patri- Patriarchal perversion uh, To you know Set things up where you know Men and God ruled the roost And you know the earth and women And other species uh, Were put here to serve man and God I mean if you're into God of spirituality don't buy that now Narrative, you know so that may help put you on the road to valuing yourself and 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 becoming empowered um, so what you're saying makes sense in fact I've even thought that uh, perhaps you know getting into the the uh, subject of mother substitutes I've often thought sometimes that women who got into goddess spirituality um, were choosing goddess as their mother substitute because they didn't get that nurturing they needed at home from their biological mother.
2: That makes sense. Uh, and the, the person that I turned to was as close to Mother Earth as you can get. She was my dad's baby sister, but she was a plain farm woman, never wore makeup, uh, just very much in tune with the earth, and just was the person that I needed. And I also yeah. became a feminist well, uh, at a very young age, too, and I think that that had a lot to do with it as well. And I was looking for something that said, I, too, am strong and powerful. I, too, can make my way in the world.
0: So in your book, um, the women that you interviewed, um Uh, what, What was talk about mother substitutes? I mean, was it sort of just the idea that because they didn't have one at home, they had to go out and find one?
2: In many cases, the women found them. They saw that here is a child that needs mothering, and they stepped in and did it. Teachers did it, next door neighbors did it, relatives, a lot of grandmothers, a lot of grandmothers and aunts did it, you know, step forward. In many cases, uh, dad's second wife became the mother substitute, and, and I had a lot of them say, had dad not remarried someone sane and sober, you know, I would have been lost, but you know, moms did not always want to let go of these daughters and let them go to other women's substitutes. One of our women that we interviewed had left her mother behind and went to live with another family member because she couldn't bear it anymore. And one day her mother called and said, if you don't come home right away, I'm going to kill your cat. And the daughter said, I can't come home right now. And in, on the phone she heard the sounds of her mother strangling her cat to death.
0: Oh, my God. Wow. So, um, all right, so you guys must have followed these women, um, you know, or or some of the women you interviewed after their alcoholic mother had passed on. Um, you know, were women able to come to terms? I, I mean, did anything change when the mother was no longer on the face of the earth? You know, uh, was, was their lives any different
2: or... One woman said that when her mother died, she had her cremated and poured her mother's ashes into the gutter in front of her mother's favorite bar. Most of us felt that we had grieved for our mothers for years before they died, and that after our mothers died, we were free. I know I could not have written my part of my mama's waltz while mama was still alive and I have been excoriated by relatives for having written it after she died but knowing that I have only her voice in my head to have to answer to has been liberating and of course getting an education and and being able to talk with other educated women like you has helped too but We have to find these other women who can help us see that we're strong. And I'm glad for the work that you're doing, and I think that it's wonderful that you're giving voice to ways that women can get back that power and and get back their their core, their courage. I appreciate it very much.
0: Well, you know, I think it's an important issue, and maybe it's even an issue that uh, we don't even know we have, Um, you know, because I would imagine that, uh, you know, once we get out from under the roof of that alcoholic mother, you know, maybe we think we've escaped and it's all over, but it isn't until later we discover that uh, maybe we still have scars and wounds, or maybe some of the choices we're making, or a result of having lived that way, um, and we find out later in life that we're still being haunted. Uh, you know, from that that early experience in our childhood. Um, so, I, so, Sharon, I wonder, when, uh, you know, when you were writing the book, uh, were women saying anything like, well, um, people tell me, why don't I just get over it? You know, pull up my oh, little gosh. panties and get over it, you know? Um, <laughs> oh, yes. I, I mean, to speak to that a little bit
2: that's what you hear most often, you know, just pull up your big girl panties and get over it. You can't do that. Just as if someone has cut off part of your leg, you're not going to regrow that part of your leg that's been cut off. You just, you may learn to walk and even run with a prosthetic leg, but you're never going to regrow that leg. We You, you learn coping ways. You learn how to put love on other people and hopefully get it from them. But uh, there's a book by Janine Roth called Feeding the Hungry Heart, and she has a, a statement that if you did not get that love from your mother when you were a child, it leaves this permanent hole in your heart that you try to feed it. Maybe it's with food, maybe it's with drugs, maybe it's with something else. But you're never going to fill that hole. It's always going to be there, always. You just have to learn that it's there. And like you would walk around an open pothole on the on the street, you learn to walk around it. You learn to make detours to get what you need from life and to find a way to be happy.
0: Great. Well, and, and also start to maybe have... Um, you know, I don't know, you know, sometimes our lives are so busy we don't have time for self-reflection. You know, why are we, you know, why am I doing this? You know, why am I feeling this? But, you know, you get to a point where uh, maybe, you know, maybe some of us, um, we start to do that uh, that self-reflection. And um, that, so I guess my point is uh, how important it is uh, to actually pull off the Band-Aid, I guess, and and be willing to connect the dots between, uh, gee, I didn't get enough of my mother's love, and that's why I do this, because that's maybe the first step in stopping that action if it's something that doesn't serve you, I would imagine.
2: I agree. The the Band-Aid is like a a germ-filled Band-Aid. It's uh, without having that cleansing air. To let this wound naturally heal, it's simply going to get worse. And that's what shame is. Shame is that Band-Aid.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I would imagine too. You know, you said you know uh, uh, some of these women have have not had good marriages, and could it be that because they didn't have love from their mother, they didn't really know how to love, how you know how to give love, how to receive love? So they were they were kind of screwed from the start. Uh, I mean, I yep. have to be crude about it, but but it it sounds like they didn't really have a chance.
2: It's – I wish people realized that you can't just fix something because you know it's there. You have to work on it. And for me, it took therapy. It took writing this book. Uh, I suffered from PTSD uh, for a long time. You know, if I started trying to talk about my mother, I would get cold all over. I would begin to shake so hard that I couldn't hold a pencil in my hand. Writing the book really helped me to come to grips with the PTSD, and I can't, uh, I can't emphasize how much I think that therapy from uh, someone who is sympathetic and knowledgeable can be so useful.
0: Yeah, it's somebody well, who can know, help Sharon, you peel back,
2: to... peel back yeah, that band Yeah, and, and you know i
0: you know i've come to the you know to the thought because like i said i've been thinking a lot about abuse and how we normalize abuse i've really started to think that probably so many of us have ptsd and don't even know it You know, uh, because uh, they didn't, they didn't. You know, we talked about PTSD in terms of soldiers that came back from war, but they aren't the only ones who suffer, who who suffer this, you know, trauma in life that follows them, you know, the rest of their life, and you know, manifests in all sorts of ways. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, they have this hole in them. Um, I just throw this out there, but you know, one of the things that's so rampant today is greed. And I think you know these people who never have enough um you know, and I'm not just talking billionaires, but I'm talking people that live beyond their means, you know people who just you know buy things in excess, you know uh crazy shoppers on home shop or whatever it is, you
2: mm-hmm. know that
0: could even be a reflection of that hole in you from yes, it's you another know, the form of addiction.
2: You feel better for a few yeah. minutes, and then when the package arrives and the bill arrives, you feel worse for a few minutes. And in order to feel better, you go and order another something. Yes, yeah. entirely. I, I totally agree. It, it's uh, it's manifested itself in addictions to behaviors as well as to substances, and you know it's uh, it's going to take our society as a whole facing some of these issues to fix them, and yeah. we just have yeah, to stop I I saying mean, but, pull up your panties and deal with it.
0: Yeah, because, you know, this is like an onion with all sorts of layers, you know. There's all sorts of layers here because if we were going to fix society, you know, we would have to fix the root cause of these problems and sometimes the root cause of these problems are sacred cows. You know, sometimes it's, you know, religion is is the problem. Sometimes it's uh, gender, you know, and how we see role models. uh, and and, I mean, there's all sorts of um, learned
1: behaviors
0: that we would have to be willing to relearn I think in order to um, fix ourselves. You know, how we look at psychology, for instance. I mean, I know there's mm-hmm. some religions that don't believe you should see a psychiatrist, don't even think you right. should see a doctor, for that matter. You know, um, we, we have a lot of work to do on ourselves as humans. Um, so I guess, you know, uh, my final question for you is, um, you know, I, I don't know if uh, when, it, when you were uh, closing the book, you know, your final chapters, um, what was the advice? Uh, for uh daughters of alcoholic mothers um were you able to uh offer any besides uh counseling you know um well
2: the major well, point of advice is know? you're not alone there are so many of you out there and i think that we got a lot of feedback uh, letters uh, emails all kinds of things i even now i still get the occasional letter or email from someone Knowing that you're not alone, that you are not the only person who has ever dealt with this, that is so uh, empowering because then you can stop saying, it's my fault I made her drink. Because often we got told that. It's your fault you made me drink. It's your fault you made your mom drink. She only drinks because of you. And when you learn that everybody else who has been through this got told the same negative messages over and over it, you're not alone you have somebody's hand to hold and that's what we advise more than anything not to just put it behind you grow up move on find a hand to hold find somebody else who understands talk to them be there for each other
0: yeah i i mean it would be great if um you know there were support groups um you know, uh, that would have been a, a great uh, a great way to go. was, of course, terribly hard to organize, uh, mm-hmm. and maybe there are even groups out there. If uh, any of my listeners uh, who are out there today, actually uh, I'd love to know about uh, support groups like Sharon and I are talking about, or uh, are there goddess women who are doing kind of an AA kind of program um, I, I would uh, I would love to talk to you as well um, if if there's something like that out there because um, that's something we haven't really talked about here on the show uh, because you know I really do think it's important that we find ways to empower women uh, so that they can throw off the shackles of patriarchy and um, you know because I do believe when women are healthy. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're supposed to be the nurturers of the world. You know, not that men can't do that because there are some good male nurturers. But, um, you know, women are the life givers after all. And, uh, um, you know, it, it just feels like to me we need to heal our women. And when women heal themselves, I think uh, we might be in a better position to, you know, heal some of society's uh, wounds like we're talking
2: about today. If you do so, Sharon, find out about um, any uh, groups like that, let me know. I would love to know about it.
0: Okay, I definitely will. I definitely will. Um, so I want to give you the last word, Sharon. I mean, you've been full of insight and important information. But uh, is there or uh, any kind of closing comments? Um, uh, you know, you want to share with listeners?
2: Just. Notice the signs in your your people, in your lives around you. If you're a teacher, pay attention to female students in class. See if they seem to exhibit some of the symptoms or traits that we've talked about. If you're a nurse, notice it in your female patients. Reach out to people that you feel might be needing you to be there for them. And we the only way we can... Heal the world is reaching out to each other. The way I'm trying to do right now to my niece, and I hope it works. Well, good
0: luck with that, Sharon. Well, thank you so much for the book and uh, for being on the show today uh, to talk about this important subject uh, with my audience. Uh, I really do appreciate it. Thank you very much. And uh,
1: thank you for inviting me.
0: well, and, and best of luck with your caretaking duties. Uh, I know so often the caretaker is neglected, so please make sure you take care of you, okay?
2: I will. Thank you very much. All right. All right.
0: Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Uh, well, that about does it uh, for me today, uh, dear listeners. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. Um, I hope you got a lot out of uh our talk today uh, maybe give you some food for thought, uh, because I think sometimes um, you know we don't even realize some of the wounds and scars we have. you know we think maybe we escaped um, you know that uh, that parents' um, mistreatment or uh, bad behavior uh, you know simply because we're not under their roof anymore, but uh, sometimes those scars are lingering. And uh, once we can um, identify those scars, then maybe we can figure out a way to heal them. Okay. Uh, Well, until our next show, um, remember, you are the gas in my tank. Uh, Please let me continue to hear from you. And um, I believe I actually have a show on uh, on Friday, uh, which will be one of the shows I mentioned where I am talking about um, the the inspirational messages and meditations from my book, Goddess Calling. I believe the first one is this Friday. So if you have clicked that follow button, you will receive uh, notice of it in your inbox. So you can just click on it when you're ready and listen. And if you haven't done it, that yet, uh, please do because I have a wonderful uh, show calendar coming up for the next few months, uh, wonderful topics that uh, I think you will enjoy. I've put a lot of effort into um, getting some really potent uh, guests and subjects um, for discussion in in the coming weeks and months, so you don't want to miss it. All right, uh, that does it for me, and uh, I'm just going to close the show uh, with uh, the music from Reclaiming's Campfire Chants. Uh, they're all activist chants. Um, I'll let you hear the conclusion of uh, of Sweetwater. Mm-hmm.